They do not labor or spin, yet, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry about worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Cynthia. Let's pray together. King Jesus, as we uh, reflect on these famous words from your Sermon on the Mount, we pray that they wouldn't be so familiar to us that they wash over us and leave us unaffected. Rather, we pray that by your Spirit, they would sink in and penetrate our hearts and change us from the inside out. I pray that they would change not only our, our actions, but our attitudes. Lord, I pray that these wouldn't just be ideas, but there's something that your spirit would write on our hearts so that we can live lives that are free from worry, so that we can enjoy the true freedom of the children of God that you have made us to be. Amen. Well, since the start of the year, we've been exploring seven rhythms of grace or spiritual disciplines that we can practice to root us in Jesus. Uh, and uh, for those of you who were here then, you'll remember that we set the scene for this by looking at Jesus' great teaching in John 15, uh, the night before he died, where he tells them that one thing mattered most, and that was what they, that they continued to abide in him, to remain in him, to make their homes in him. He used the image of the vine and its branches to make his points. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, finish it, you can do nothing. And we reflected on what this means for us as disciples, followers of Jesus. Namely, that our number one job is to be with Jesus and receive life from him. Now, what we've also been trying to say as we go along is that these rhythms of grace or spiritual disciplines are practices from the life and teachings of Jesus. They're things that Jesus did to keep him anchored in the Father's presence, from which all of his uh, ministry and mission flowed. So together, these spiritual disciplines make up a kind of rule of life. Now, a rule of life isn't a rule book. Rather, it's a framework to help us grow uh, in the way of Jesus. Instead of rules, as in a list of uh, do's and don'ts, think instead of a ruler. So something that helps you draw a straight line or measure something. 
The image we used uh, right at the beginning of January was that of a trellis. It's a, it's a supporting structure that enables growth. The spiritual disciplines are ways that we say yes to Jesus' invitation to take the next step on our journey with him. And so our hope is that these seven rhythms of grace become a kind of scaffolding for our growth as a church. Uh, Last autumn, we looked at our seven values, the things that we want to become our DNA, or to put it another way, the, the distinguishing characteristics of our life together. So things like worshiping joyfully, pray dependently, live radically, love extravagantly, think biblically, give sacrificially, and witness organically. And so what we've tried to do is to to link up each of these seven values to a spiritual discipline that can help us more fully embody that. So today then, we're thinking about how we can say yes to Jesus' invitation to be a people of sacrificial giving. And so we're looking at the spiritual discipline of simplicity. And the the biblical peg in which I want to hang this morning's teaching is, is there in verse 33. But Jesus says, Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things, in other words, food and drink and clothing, all the things we tend to worry about, all these things will be given to you as well. Now, to put this into context, this is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It is, uh, if you like, Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom, which he has come to embody and to enact. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture of what it would mean to live in God's kingdom. That is, under the rule and reign of God. Already, Jesus has challenged some of our conventional ways of thinking about religion. For instance, he said, it's, it's not merely enough not to murder anyone. Rather, to despise someone in our hearts is already the same thing. What he's saying is that the life in the kingdom is about much more than just our outward behavior. It's about the inward renovation of our hearts. And so we get to these words about money and possessions. And by the way, with all the debates that are going on uh, at the moment in the Church of England, Jesus talked far more about money and possessions than he did about sex and relationships. And Jesus does the same thing here too. He drives the issue down into the human heart. Jesus shows us that not just what we do with our money and our possessions, but our attitudes towards our money and our possessions have the ability to either humanize us, to make us more fully in the image of Jesus, or to dehumanize us, people who's, in whom God's image is less and less recognizable. In other words, Jesus is saying that our stuff has enormous spiritual power, either for good or for bad. And the battleground, as with most things, is the human heart. And so the, the ultimate takeaway that for us as we think about simplicity uh, is this. A simple lifestyle is the outward expression of an inward treasuring and prioritizing of Jesus and his kingdom. And so as I, I try and unpack that for us this morning, I think we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the root of simplicity. In other words, what it is, what it isn't. Second, the shoot of simplicity, how it comes about. And third, the fruit of simplicity, 
what results it has, what effects it has. First then, what is simplicity? Here's how Richard Foster, author of the, the classic book about the spiritual discipline, Celebration of Discipline. Has anyone read that book? It's a good number of hands. It's a, it's a brilliant book. Here's how Richard Foster describes simplicity. He says, simplicity is the inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. According to Mark Scandrett, uh, simplicity means choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possession toward what matters most. Another way about talking about simplicity is minimalism, which Joshua Becker describes as the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. So what I hope you see just from those three definitions already is that simplicity isn't just another word for austerity. It isn't just about having less. It's actually about having more of what really matters. It's like Jesus says in John 15 uh, with the vine and the, and the branches. Why do you prune the branches so that they'll be more fruitful? You trim things back in order to focus growth. So Stephen Covey, the uh, best-selling author of uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, puts it this way. He says, you have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. The enemy of the best is often the good. Now, before you go getting impressed at Stephen Covey, let's realize he wasn't being original in what he said, because that is effectively just what Jesus said in verse 33. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The essence of simplicity, therefore, isn't just making do with less. It's much more positive than that. The essence of simplicity is valuing what's most valuable. It's the, the heart of it is a, a laser, fo- excuse me, is a laser focus on what's truly important in life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what all those definitions that I shared with you are saying. It's saying no to some things in order to say yes to something bigger and better. You might say that the spiritual discipline of simplicity is simply about putting first things first. So to quote uh, Stephen Covey again, this is a great quote, and I think it's really helpful for us to think about. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, And the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. So 
Do you see, simplicity is actually single-mindedness. But as Thomas Aquinas observed, every choice is also a renunciation. Every yes to one thing is a no to something else. If I choose to marry one person, I can't then choose to marry someone else. If I choose to spend my time, uh, if I choose to, to live in, in Osset, I can't simultaneously live in San Francisco. Uh, if I choose to spend my time and energy training to become a musician, I can't use that same time and energy training to become a baker. Yet we're, we're often told that we can have it all. I'm afraid it's a lie. We can't have it all. Why? Sorry if this bursts your bubble, but you're human. You're finite, limited beings. You can't do it all. You can't have it all. But the question is then, what is the main thing? If the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, what is the main thing? Now, there are lots of good things out there, but what is the main thing? Listen again to what Jesus says is the main thing. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. What's first on the list for Jesus? God. God's kingdom, his rule and reign, doing what he wants done. And God's righteousness, his idea of a life well lived. That is number one. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now isn't that something all of us in the modern West need to hear? Instead, what does Jesus say life consists of? Listen to these words from John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's his idea of life. Jesus' idea of life is knowing God. Life is not having lots of stuff. Life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. And I don't mean knowing as in intellectually knowing. I mean knowing through personal experience, having a relationship with. So the first question I just want to ask us to reflect on is, is your life directed toward that one great aim of knowing God? Are we pursuing him with all that we've got? Or is our pursuit of God more of a hobby that we engage in if we've got time and energy after everything else. You see, that the opposite of simplicity isn't complexity, it's superficiality. John Altberg says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. What a challenge that is. The biggest danger isn't that we'll turn away from our faith, but that we'll just skim the surface of it. How would my life 
How would your life, how would this church's life be different if our one great priority was simply to know God better? Which takes us to the second point. How can we tell what we value most? So let's listen to what Jesus says in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So money, uh, like the kind that you have in uh, your pockets, your purses, simply pieces of metal or pieces of paper. And the reason we're concerned with money is because in our culture, we've established that these pieces of paper or metal uh, function as currency. They, in other words, they, they represent value. We exchange money for what we value. And how much we value something determines how much money we exchange for it. So what that means is what we do with our money reflects the value that our hearts ascribe to something. Whether it be beer or bootlaces, paintings or pretzels. So let me just try and flesh this out for us a little bit. So we value our lives. We value our bodies. We value our taste buds. And therefore we spend our money not only on food, but good food, nutritious food. Food that we enjoy the taste of. We value our appearance. We value what others think of us. Therefore, we spend our money on clothes, our makeup, shoes. We value our entertainment, probably a bit too much. Therefore, we spend our money on Sky and Netflix and Disney+. Plus. You get the point. John Piper is spot on when he says that the movement of your money signifies the movement of your heart. And Tim Keller uh, puts it like this. Brilliant. He says, One way to discern your heart's true love is to look at how you spend your money. Your money flows most effortlessly towards your heart's greatest love. And it's true not only of our treasures, but of our time and our talents also. So I thought... As I was preparing for today, that it's only fair uh, to search myself first. Where does my money flow most effortlessly towards once you take out the necessities like food and gas and electricity and things like that? And the answer is books. I can tell that surprises a lot of you. Uh, I love reading. So the, value, uh, so the flow of my money tends, uh, tends to be towards books. And that might say that I value learning and education. And I think I do. But there's also potentially a darker side of that flow of money towards books. And the potential darker side of that flow of money towards books might say that I value thinking of myself in the right intellectual circles, or being thought of by other people as learned. The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else. What does the flow of your money say about what you value most? 
We all make choices with our money. What do your choices say about you? How do they line up with the one overarching aim of our lives to know God? Jesus says that what we do with our money as well as our time and our energy reflects our priorities. Therefore, I want to encourage all of us this morning to to consider or to reconsider our priorities. Jesus urges his followers to invest their wealth in an offshore bank account. In other words, a heavenly one, if you hadn't picked that up. In other words, he calls us to use our money to invest in God's kingdom. Now, it's my conviction that God has called the local church to be the means by which his kingdom continues to advance in the world. Therefore, I believe that by giving to the local church, that is one of the main ways that we can invest in God's kingdom work of evangelizing the nations and building up the body of Christ until we're brought to spiritual maturity and until there's no needy person among us. Last autumn, we launched our new mission statement, which Marie prayed into We exist to be and to make disciples who love Jesus as their greatest treasure, learn Jesus as their way of life, and live Jesus for the renewal of the world. And this is all kingdom work. We don't just want to see children attending church. We want to see them born again. We we want to see them living for Jesus in their schools. We want to see them living for Jesus at Cubs, at Brownies, as they're doing ballet. We don't just want a church full of people. That's great. But we want a church full of ordinary radicals who shine with the glory of God in their homes, in their workplaces, just like Moses did when he came down from meeting God off Mount Sinai. We don't just want to know about the work of missionaries around the world. We want to be supporting them. We want to be sending them. So if you value the spread of the gospel and the the ministries of the church, not just the ministries that exist now, but the ministries that could be uh, in the future, please do let me encourage you to uh, consider how you support the church financially, or if you're already doing so, whether you might be able to increase your giving. Now, it's not just a local church that's involved in that. There are lots of other charities Uh, that uh, Christian organizations that are involved in that as well. I just want us to to be mindful of what Jesus says, that where we put our money reflects where we put our heart. And that's why I see my primary responsibility as a church leader to be setting before you the supreme value of God in Jesus. Because I want us to get our priorities right. He alone is what matters. And our priorities aren't right if we care more about comfort or convenience than God's glory. Everything flows from the heart. And until we treasure Jesus above everything else, we're going to waste our lives on things that are going to disappoint us eternally. So finally then, I just want to take a few minutes to explore what simplicity looks like in practice. So far we've said that the root of Christian simplicity is an inward treasuring and prioritizing of Jesus and his kingdom. And we've said that the movement of our money shows what we truly 
treasure and prioritize. But what does it mean to live out simplicity in our everyday ordinary lives? Well, first, it will look like freedom from worry. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Simplicity looks like being unpossessed by our possessions. It looks like trust that God is enough for me. And he'll give me everything that I need. Not necessarily everything I think I need. Not necessarily everything I want. But he is enough for me. Uh, I think I've said it before. uh, This uh, equation. God. Wait a minute. Everything minus God equals nothing. But everything, uh, nothing plus God equals everything. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer of the church uh, in the Middle Ages, said this. He said, the sinful worship of mammon does not consist in eating and drinking and wearing clothes. For the needs of this life and the body make food and clothing a requirement. But the sin consists in being concerned about it and making it the reliance and confidence of your heart. So what he's saying is, the problem isn't food and and drink and money. God knows that we need those things. The problem is when we look to money instead of God for our security. Jesus says, our security should come from knowing God loves you. You are more valuable than the sparrows. You're more valuable than than all the flowers in the field. That's where your security comes from. And so a heart that loves Jesus as its greatest treasure won't care about having bigger and bigger barns every year. What do I need a bigger barn for? I've got Jesus. We're so easily sucked into the mindset of, I can afford it, so why wouldn't I buy it? I remember a really good piece of advice that my dad gave to me uh, when I was a kid. It was especially during the sales when I was kind of, my eye was tempted by something. And he said, it's only a bargain if you need it. Otherwise, you're just spending money you don't need to spend. Now, how easily we fritter away our money simply because we have it. If you've got too much money, we can use it. So if that's a problem for you, don't worry. Fear not. But think of the amount we could do with the the money that we just waste every year on tat. The challenge is to use our money in such a way that says that God is more valuable to us than our money. Uh, And Jesus says we can't serve two masters, just like we can't have two first loves. Who is first in our heart, he asks us. Who do we look to 
for, to, for love and security? Do we look to God? Do we look to money? Uh, the 18th century British evangelist John Wesley once quipped that the last pers- part of a person to get converted is their wallet. Why? Because where you put your resources is where you put your heart. Uh, John Mark Comer describes it the heart, uh, sorry, describes money as the steering wheel to your engine of desire. We glorify God with our money by holding it lightly and being generous with it. Uh, I love uh, these words from John Piper. He says, The world watching the Christian church is never drawn to Christ by our prosperity. Never. They may be drawn to the church that tells them they can prosper. That's not the same thing as being drawn to Christ. What draws people to Christ is people who could have, and because they value Jesus more, don't keep. That's what draws people to Christ. In other words, what draws people to Christ is sacrificial love. Love that costs something. When people see that we could be watching Netflix and instead we're buying extra groceries to give to the local food bank. When people see that on our salary we could be driving a new BMW and instead we're, using, we're driving a used Vauxhall. When people see that we could be having a four-week holiday in Vietnam and instead we're sending a missionary to Vietnam. In those and a million ways that I'm not imaginative enough to think up, our sacrificial says, we don't keep our treasure here. Check my pockets. No treasure here. My treasure's up there. He's our real treasure. And so the the spiritual discipline of simplicity is a lifestyle of freely chosen downward mobility. It's a matter of choosing to adopt a wartime kind of lifestyle. It's about saying that my life is about something bigger than me and my wants and my comforts and my convenience. It's about denying ourselves for the sake of something greater, God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And so on the the matter of how, how much to give, how much is right to give, I simply want to share these words of C.S. Lewis which I think is a wonderful barometer. He says, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. In other words, he's saying that our giving should cost us something. It should be sacrificial in some way. And so let me just finish with a couple of uh, practical applications. The first is simply this. Let me encourage you to, to take an audit of your life over this next week. How you spend your money how you spend your time, how you spend your energies. Just reflect on what, where your money's going, where your time is going, where your energy is going. And if the movement of our money and our resources reflects the movement of our hearts, 
Just come to the end of the week and ask yourself, what do I notice? What does is, what is my bank account, what does my calendar say my priorities are? And what does it say about where God's kingdom and God's righteousness are on the list of those priorities? And then ask yourself the question, how might my life look different if God's kingdom and God's righteousness really were top of my list of priorities like they were for Jesus? What might I need to say yes to? What might I need to say no to? And second, having done that, think about how you could simplify your life. So you could start by trying to simplify your wardrobe. Most of us, including me, uh, have far too many clothes. So why not go through them and see what you actually need and give some away to a charity shop? You could also try to simplify your schedule. So look through your diary and ask yourself whether you're giving yourself enough times for the things that really matter. I often put a lot of things onto my calendar just to make sure that they happen. So for instance, I'm really sad, but I put date nights into my diary. Because it's a way for me, it might not work for all of you, but for me it's a way of saying, I have set this apart, this is important, this matters. If I don't prioritize what matters, what I know tends to happen is that little things creep in and it doesn't happen. So consider how you can make room for what matters. And then finally, yes, please do consider how you can support Christ Church financially. Many of you, I know, are already so, so generous, and I want to thank you for that. Your sacrificial giving to this church and its mission and ministry is a way of saying that you, your treasure is in heaven. A couple of weeks ago, Peter shared a picture with us that the Lord had given him as a picture of a map of Osset with Christchurch overlaid on top of it as its beating heart with arteries and veins spreading all through its streets. It's an incredible vision. I've been thinking about it these last couple of weeks. Now, money alone won't make that into a reality. Only God makes that a reality. But God can also use our money to do amazing things for the advance of his kingdom here in Osset and beyond. Now, the reason for talking about money like this as I have this morning, and I hope you see it's not just about money, it's about so much more. First and foremost, it's about our hearts. But one of the reasons it matters so much to me is that what we, because what we do with our money reflects our hearts, I am jealous that your hearts belong to Jesus. He is the one who deserves first place in our lives. So let's pray. King Jesus, we pray that you would be our first, our last, our everything. We pray that you'd give us hearts that treasure you above all else, and we pray that you would free us from the clutter of our lives so that we may love you with more joyful simplicity. Amen.